morning, church. Trust you all had a very blessed week this week. Um, it is always good uh, to be worshipping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, together. And of course, it's always a privilege and an honor to be bringing the Word of God uh, for you today. But again, we just also want to thank uh, any new visitors that may be joining us today. It's always a pr privilege. Uh, it's always great to have new people here uh, with us today. Uh, this weekend, Pastor Gareth and Kerry are away, and then they'll be taking a short trip to the U.S. So please can I encourage you to keep them in your prayers because they'll be away, and we pray that they can accomplish all that they set out to do by the grace of God. So this morning, we'll be continuing on our study of the book of Acts, the gospel in motion. And then last week, uh, Pastor Gareth started chapter 24, so this morning we'll be concluding chapter 24. So last week we learned of the trial of Paul, where he appeared before Felix in Caesarea. So Pastor Gareth showed us how Paul's character was on trial. So can you recall the title of his message? It was When Integrity Goes on Trial. So I want to briefly remind you of the events that that followed and of course for those of you that weren't here you'll be able to catch up with us so if you recall five days after Paul arrived in Caesarea the Jewish prosecuting team arrived as well to state their charges against him which we find in Acts chapter 24 verses 1 and this prosecuting team composed of uh, the high priest Ananias some of the Jewish elders and, of course, a special legal counselor who was called Tertullus. Now, the Sanhedrin were taking no chances of, at all to allow Paul to slip through their fingers. And that's why they hired a lawyer, Tertullus. So when Felix asked Tertullus to present his case, if you can recall, he began using very flowery, flattery language. He said this in verses 2 and 3. He says, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms to this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. So I don't think Tertullus was particularly interested in uh, using these words or compliments to persuade Felix, but clearly he wanted to persuade Felix towards the Sanhedrin's position. And he was offering a real twisted version of events that actually occurred. For he accused Paul of three particular charges. Firstly, of stirring up riots. Secondly, of being a Christian leader. And thirdly, for profaning the temple. So essentially, he was accusing Paul of sedition, of sacrilege, and sectarianism. I really practiced that word all week, and I still couldn't get it right. That is my, uh, what was the word that you used today, Pedro? Substitutionary. Sectarianism. <laughs> I could have sec sectarianism. Yes, I got it. <laughs> so to the Romans, obviously the first charge would have been the most serious because it amounted to rebellion, with which was punishable by death. So from verses 10 to 21, we see that Paul then stated his case, and he spoke the truth with integrity, for he addressed Felix with respect, for his words were very brief, 
they were very honest, unlike Tertullus, right? He denied the first and the last charges, but he admitted to being a Christian. Paul explained that he only recently arrived in Jerusalem. He spent perhaps a week in prison, so there would have been very little time for Paul to have stirred up a riot. He had come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and not to cause any trouble at all. He had not even disputed with anyone, much less engage in any activity that would result in a riot. So after denying these charges, Paul then admitted that I worship the God of our ancestors. And he also admitted to being a follower of the way. But Paul chose his words very carefully. He proceeded to show that as a Christian, he was also a faithful Jew. For he accepted the law and the prophets and that he lived his life in the light of the resurrection and the judge and the judgment of the just and the unjust. So you see, it is not clear which of the accusers that were present in the, uh, at the trial were believers in the resurrection. For the high priest and the other members of the Sadducean party would not have believed in the resurrection. However, some of the elders that came from Jerusalem might have been Pharisees. Uh, we know that they believed in the resurrection. The Jews also who were present would have believed in the resurrection because they listened to what the Pharisees had to say. In that sense, Paul would have been in alignment with the Jewish nation regarding belief in the resurrection. However, as we very well know, their theology was very different. For the Pharisees, the resurrection of the just was a future event, and that justification was very dependent on an individual's commitment to obey the law. Now, we discussed this this morning. For, for Paul, he pledged a future of resurrection that already occurred in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Paul believed that all Christians, even after conversion, were subject to sin and fell short of God's glory. Thus, Christians had a very a different approach to salvation. They had to be called by God. They had to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They had to be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit. Then, only by Jesus Christ living through them, through, uh, living in them through the Spirit that they were accepted by God as being righteous and by being holy. And because of this, Christians live new lives to please God. So this was Paul's theology, which was very different from the Pharisees. But in verse 17, Paul set the record straight of why he came to Jerusalem. He said, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, and to present offerings. Now the reason Paul came to Jerusalem was to bring an offering for the fellow Jews, right? The alms were for the disciples. And to Paul, this collection was extremely important, for he saw this as a way for the Gentile churches to show their love towards their Jewish brethren. And then finally, Paul uh, answered the charge of profaning the temple. He insisted that he was ceremonially clean and that 
there was no menacing group with him at the temple. You see, Paul's real accusers who started the wild rumors about him desecrating the temple, the Jews in Asia Minor, were not even present at this court case. And under Roman law, essentially the disappearance of the accusers meant that the charges were dropped, that they were withdrawn. So their absence therefore suggested that they had nothing against him and that would stand up essentially in the Roman court of law. But Paul did the same thing in his defense as he did with the Sanhedrin. He claimed that he was on trial because of the resurrection. Paul insisted that the real issue here was a religious one. But finally, we ended last week where we see Felix, he declined to make a decision about Paul. However, he kept Paul in custody. Luke recorded that Paul had some liberties, but he had access to his co-workers as well. So this morning, can you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 24? And we'll be reading from verses 24 to 27. So if you can stand, please, to observe reverence for God's word. <coughs> Acts chapter 24, verses 24 to 27. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for the opportunity to come and praise you and worship you. Father, we just pray that as we look deep into your word today, Lord, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us and guide us, Lord, so that we can see the truths of this passage, Lord. And Father, we want to apply these passage, this passage today to our lives, Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my Rock, and my Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Isn't it amazing that despite the hustle and the bustle of life, we spend a great time or a great deal of time waiting. Some of you have waited a great deal of time to get your visa to be able to enter this country. Some of us find ourselves waiting in queues at the banks or in the supermarkets or waiting for our food in the favorite restaurant or in our cars at traffic lights or at petrol garages, waiting for our children to come out of school or for our bosses to make particular important decisions. Some of you may even be waiting for the sermon to come to an end. Waiting just appears to be an accepted part of life. And Bob Diffenbauer, in his study on Acts chapter 
24 asks this question. He says, have you ever stopped to think of how much of our time as Christians is spent waiting on God? For if you read the Old Testament, you will see many divine delays that require the saints to be constantly waiting. Where we find Sarah and Abraham waiting for their promised son. Where you see Joseph waiting for his dreams to be fulfilled. And Moses waiting for 40 years to be the deliverer of Israel. And then another 40 years for Israel to be able to enter the promised land. David also had to wait to take the throne of Israel. And Israel had to wait for her restoration for the Messiah to come. So of course in the New Testament it is no different, right? For in our passage today we find Paul waiting on a decision by Felix. In fact, he waited two years and still no verdict was pronounced by this politician. I mean, given all the evidence that was before him, surely a no guilty verdict should have been pronounced. And I know if I was in that position, I would have felt very frustrated, maybe even angry, thinking about all the things that I could have accomplished. But maybe think about how Paul must have felt in that position. Think of all the things that he could have accomplished, all the churches that he may have planted, all the people that he could have saved. But despite this, there's so much that we can learn from this passage before us today. We see the difference between these two main characters, between Paul and between Felix, for they behave very differently in both situations. Which brings me to the title of my sermon, sermon An Encounter of Contrasting Agendas. So Luke does tell us that Felix was a man with considerable knowledge concerning Christianity or the way. For Felix understood Christianity and Judaism. Because of this, Felix could have easily pronounced a judgment, finding Paul not guilty and setting him free. But of course we know that this was not the case for at least two reasons. Firstly, we see God in his sovereignty ordained Paul to go to Rome and preach the gospel to the kings. And secondly, we see that Felix was a typical politician, right? He wanted to use the situation to his advantage. As we read, he not only wanted to obtain a bribe from Paul, but he also wanted to carry favor from the Jews. So in the concluding part of this chapter, we observe Felix to be a cunning politician, and we observe Paul to be a consistent a faithful preacher of the gospel. So Paul remained in prison in Caesarea for two years, right? In chapter 24, verses 27. But Luke tells us nothing of the activities during this time or the activities of the church. There may have been many questions that we would have wanted answered. For example, what happened to the Gentile delegation that had accompanied Paul to Jerusalem at the time? And what were Luke and Timothy doing? And what role did the church in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, and in Antioch hel uh, help or play helping in supporting Paul? But let's look at my first point. We see the truth of the gospel proclaimed, which is in chapter 24, 24 to 25a. So Luke continues his narrative by telling us that after some days, after the hearing was aborted, that Felix came to see Paul 
with his wife, Drusilla. Now, we know from, hi from history that Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, and she was not even 20 years old at the time. Her father murdered James, and a great uncle was responsible for killing John the Baptist. And as a small girl, she was meant to marry the crown prince of the Comanges in Eastern Asia Minor. But the marriage did not take place because the prospective bridegroom at the time, he refused to convert to Judaism. So then her brother, Agrippa II, gave her in marriage to the king in Emesa, which is a state in Syria. But when she was only 16 years old, Felix, with the help of a Cypriot magician called Atomus, persuaded her to leave her husband and to be his wife. So she joined Felix as his third wife and bore him a son named Agrippa. So it is not clear why Drusilla joined Felix in these meetings, because Luke doesn't elaborate this in the passage. But I'm sure Felix must have told her about Paul, and perhaps she was interested in what Paul had to say. Or perhaps Drusilla was hoping to be able to re-enter Judaism through Paul's sect. For you see, Felix caused her to transgress the laws of her forefathers in order to marry him. So she would have been considered an apostate Jew. For the marriage of Felix and Drusilla had been built on adultery, upon betrayal, upon lies, and upon sorcery as well. So what did Paul speak to them about? Well, he proclaimed the truth of the gospel to them. He spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. He spoke about righteousness, about self-control, and about judgment. The imprisoned Paul was teaching the couple that their lives were not in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the gospel has a moral decision or a moral dimension and speaks to personal behavior. For a life in Jesus Christ involves living an ethical life. It is based on the principles of God's law. You see, Paul didn't tone down his message or give them a watered-down version of the gospel. He may have been tempted to, considering the people he was addressing at the time. But Paul remained true to his convictions. He remained true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Luke mentions that Paul addressed righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Now, he doesn't go into any detail about what Paul spoke to them regarding these topics. But we know from the New Testament that Paul had plenty to say on these topics. For the word righteousness appears more than 270 times in the Bible. And Paul uses it more than 31 times in his letter to the Romans. So if I was to go through all these passages with you this morning, you'll be waiting a very long time for me to finish. But let's just have a look and see what the scriptures tell us about God. For Paul knew this. So if we turn to Exodus chapter 34, 6 to 7, which was a passage that we went through this morning, we see Moses write, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin. So we see God to be a loving, merciful, gracious God. But he ends with saying, but who will by no means clear the guilty? So we have a God that will punish. We have a God that will serve justice. We have a God who is just. So Paul knew who God was. And if we turn to the Psalms, if we look in Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 11, verses 7, the psalmist says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And Psalm 89, verses 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And we also see the minor prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, verses 13, who says, your eyes are too pure. You cannot tolerate wrong. You see, Paul knew who God was, that God was a God of perfect justice and unassailable righteousness. So if we turn to Romans chapter 3, look in your Bible, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, and Paul writes more on the topic of righteousness. He says this in his passage. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in other words, Righteousness is not based on obeying the law. People can have a right standing with God only through the faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is only Jesus' blood that satisfies God's wrath. God's righteous anger needed to be just or satisfied before sin can be forgiven. God in his love, sent his only son to meet the demands of his holy anger against sin. So therefore, God is both just and justifier. Let me illustrate it in a different way. There were two friends that grew up together in the same neighborhood. They were once best of friends. They were very close. However, when they finished high school, they went their separate ways where one of them became a very successful uh, lawyer who then went on to become a judge. The other one, unfortunately, fell into the crowd and became a criminal. Then one day, as this judge was sitting in his chambers, when before him he saw his friend. His friend was being prosecuted for stealing. Now the judge looked at his friend and was completely heartbroken. The same friend that grew up with him now standing before him as a criminal. 
And he was conflicted, right? He needed to administer justice for this is what the law required. But at the same time, he loved his friend. So he passed judgment. He fined his friend a sum of money that he knew could not pay back. His friend looked incredibly downcast. But then the judge did something amazing. He took off his cloak, stepped down from his bench, approached his friend, took out his checkbook, and paid his fine. The judge being both just and justifier. But of course, this is just a simple analogy. It cost, it cost God very dearly. It cost the life of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, something that we could never fathom. So that was righteousness. But let's look at self-control. Again, Luke doesn't elaborate what Paul was speaking about self-control. But Paul does have information on this in the New Testament. So shall we flip over one page to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. So we see what Paul has to say about this. He says, beginning at verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now there is some debate amongst the biblical scholars of who Paul is addressing in this particular passage. Is he addressing the believers or is he addressing the non-believers? Some people interpret this as Paul's inner conflict prior to him coming to faith in Christ. For Paul talks about or describes a man that is sold under sin and nothing good dwells in him and a wretched man that is trapped in a body. But it is also correct to think that Paul might be speaking about a believer where a person desires to obey God's law and hates his sin, where he is humble, recognizes that nothing good dwells in him at all. He, see, he sees sin in himself, but serves Jesus Christ in his mind. But even those who agree that Paul is talking about um, believers, there is also some debate where they disagree. For some see this as a person who is a fleshly believer, whilst others see this maybe as a legalistic Christian 
who is frustrated by their attempts to please God through the Mosaic law. But either way, if you are a believer or not, we know that people do struggle with self-control. For James Rogers from Fort Dodge tells us, self-control that is saving is not found outside of Jesus Christ. So let me say that again. Self-control that is saving is not found outside of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have the self-control that is needed if we apply it to when we struggle with the flesh. See, Paul did not live in a broken state, a separated state, or a sinful state. He would share and give hope about a saved state. So we are to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, for it is the Spirit that can put to death the deeds in the flesh. So there's the self-control. What about the judgment? Again, Luke doesn't furnish any details about the judgment that Paul spoke to them about. But if you turn to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, Luke writes, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he demands, or now he commands, all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, friends, we know that God will hold all people accountable. He has given all judgment to his Son, and everyone will give an account for themselves one day. But Jesus' resurrection is at the heart of God's plan for history, for the basis of our hopeful future resurrection of the body. So that was concerning judgment. But now what was Felix and Drusilla's response? So let's have a look at my second point, uh, which is a decision delayed. Chapter 24, verses 25a to 27. So we see that Felix was alarmed. He was afraid. He must have been terrified listening to Paul talking about righteousness, about self-control, about judgment, all the things that he and Drusilla struggled with. So he told Paul to go away and that he would talk to him at another time. So there's no indication that Felix or Drusilla actually came to faith, for Felix called Paul on many occasions, and his motives here appear to be very mixed. Perhaps he did have some interest in the gospel, but he also felt the pressure from the Jews as well. Perhaps he feared to some degree about the judgment that was to come. And he wavered, and his wavering appeared never-ending. But Luke also writes and tells us that he was hoping to receive a bribe from Paul. So perhaps he was just being a canny politician, wanting more money, more greed, more wealth more status. However, we see that two years after Paul was brought to Caesarea, that Felix's governorship over Judea came to an end. He had been the governor from approximately AD 52 to AD 58 or 59. And Josephus said that Felix was recalled to Rome by Nero, and he was replaced by Festus, 
who arrived in AD 59. And next week, we'll continue the narrative and we'll learn more about the story that unfolds. So let's just see what we can learn from the passage. What sort of application can we make for we want to read the word and apply it to our lives? So firstly, we can see that Paul witnessed the truth and the, puri the purity of the gospel. He proclaimed this gospel with purity and with truth. Paul was placed into prison for two years, and, me, and he may have been tempted to water down the gospel to Felix and Drusilla, for it may have even aided his release. However, Paul proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ. He spoke to them about righteousness, about self-control, and about judgment, all very difficult topics and uncomfortable topics. But he was not afraid he was not ashamed to tell them that they were lost in their sin, that their lives were not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said on his Sermon on the Mount, where he encouraged his listeners in Matthew chapter 7, 12 to 13, Jesus said, Beware to enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. See, Paul could have also focused on God's love and the promised blessings of the gospel. Or even worse, he could have even condemned or condoned their sin. It is only the false teachers who approve the actions of the world. And we know in our studies that we refer to these churches as the immorality-affirming churches, churches that condone the sin of the world. And the Bible teaches us, though, that when you believe and when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that you will face opposition in the world. The church and its mission will be always at odds with the world. So by declaring allegiance in Christ Jesus, Believers will face opposition with the world, with the devil, and of course with the flesh as well. Our mission will not be easy. For Jesus said, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that is in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. So as believers in Christ, our mission would be always to be ready to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to be encouraged or to encourage sinners to repentance, to repent of their sins and to believe in Christ Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. We are to stand firm and learn from Paul. We are not to fall into the trap of making the gospel palatable for the non-believers, to spread the truth of the gospel no matter how difficult, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter what the consequences may be. It may mean losing family. may mean losing close loved ones. It may mean losing close friends or even co-workers. But brothers and sisters, trust in Jesus. He is worth it. So the secondly, we witness the integrity of Paulia. He was falsely accused and his freedom was taken away from him by being placed into custody. However, we don't seem to see any bitterness from Paul. He continued to wait patiently 
and proclaimed the gospel with grace, even though he was falsely accused and imprisoned. From Paul's perspective, it may have felt like a complete and utter waste of time. As I said in the beginning, he may have been out planting more churches or saving more people. However, because of the power of the gospel, we see that Paul never bent the rules or offered any bribes, even though he may have been tempted to. And I'm sure if he paid Felix a sum of money, he would have been released early. Instead, Paul trusted in God. He trusted in God's plan for his life. He believed in the sovereignty of God and the plan that God had. He never stooped down to the level of Felix and Drusilla. Thus, as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to behave with integrity and to believe and trust the plan that God has for our lives. Even though we find ourselves in very difficult situations, very uncomfortable places, we are to trust God in His plan. And thirdly, we observe the patience and the grace of God towards Drusilla and towards Felix. Paul was exactly where he was meant to be because of the sovereignty of God. If you recall, when Paul came to faith, God spoke to Ananias and said this in Acts chapter 9, verses 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So Paul was exactly where he was ordained, or he was where he was ordained to do. God ordained this Roman ruler and his wife not only to hear the gospel of Jesus, but to hear it for two years. For this two-year delay was a manifestation of God's grace towards them, towards Felix and Drusilla. But sadly, it appears that this grace was rejected, and this couple will face the eternal wrath of God instead of God's glorious salvation. Felix probably thought that he was a shrewd politician by putting off Paul's guilt or innocence. But he only ended up putting off the matter of his own guilt through his sin or his innocence through the blood of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, know that although God is patient and gracious towards us, he is both just and he is justifier. Make no mistake, there will be a coming day of judgment and the matter of eternal salvation should be dealt with today. I love what Pastor Dan Cafesi states. He says, No sin has ever loved you back. No sin has ever loved you back. So no amount of lying, scheming, manipulating, fornication, adultery, pornography, idol worship will ever satisfy you. It will only leave you empty and void. Only the love of Jesus will provide you with the peace, with fulfillment, and with encouragement. So turn to Him. Don't turn to your sin. So for those who are listening here today who haven't put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, don't delay, don't procrastinate in making the most important decision of your life. For we know Time waits for no man. Your existence in the kingdom of God depends on this important situation. Repent of your sin. 
don't delay, turn to Jesus today. And Spurgeon once said this about delay. He says, it is foolish to trust in a convenient time to repent and believe. And this is old English. He says, thou sayest another time, how knowest thou that thou wilt ever feel again as thou feelest now? This morning, perhaps a voice is saying in thy heart, prepare to meet thy God. Tomorrow, that voice will be hushed. The gaieties of the ballroom and the theater will put out their voice that warns thee now, and perhaps thou wilt never hear it again. Men all have their warnings, and men who perish have had their last warning. Perhaps this is your last warning. And Peter, the apostle, wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, 8 to 9. He said, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. For the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So folks, this passage before us today is packed with truth. If you are a believer, I would suggest you go down on a bended knee and thank God for his goodness and the free gift of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. For he is the author of life. He is the author of salvation. But if you are a non-believer, perhaps today can be the day of your salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this passage before us today, Lord. We are so grateful and privileged, Lord, to be able to receive the gift of grace through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, and we know that it is only when we repent and come to faith in your Son that we are saved. And this is of your own doing. It has nothing to do with our works, Lord, for we have no control over that. But Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we honor you. And may the rest of our worship be, uh, be acceptable in your sight. And we offer this all for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.